This is Rafael Lado for the Early Link Podcast. I'm excited to announce that this is our 20th episode. If you'd like to catch up on past episodes, you can find them on our website at childinst.org, or you can subscribe to the podcast with iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing an amazing panel to discuss the needs of English learners and dual language learners in our schools, communities, and early learning systems. We'll also learn about a recent report called Promising Futures that offers recommendations for how to promote the educational success of young English learners. And we'll take a look at two Oregon districts leading the way on language development for their students. First, I would like to introduce Ruby Takanishi. She's a senior research fellow with the Early and Elementary Education Policy Program at New America. She's the author of First Things First, Creating the New American Primary School, and she recently chaired the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine consensus report called Promising Futures, which focuses on the education of English learners from birth to age 21. Ruby, welcome. Thank you. We also have Perla Rodriguez, who is the principal at Echo Shaw Elementary in the Forest Grove School District, and is a first-generation Chicana born and raised in eastern Oregon, and she is the product of a Head Start in Oregon's public education system. Perla, it's great to have you here. Thank you. We also have Maria Poppy Adams. Uh, She has worked in education for 23 years and is currently a language development specialist at Earl Boyles Elementary in the David Douglas School District and an English language development presenter for the district. Maria, welcome. Thank you. Ruby, I'm going to direct the first question to you. Uh, You recently chaired a committee for the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine that looked at how to promote the educational success of children learning English. Can you talk about the purpose of the report and the highlights and findings? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, The purpose of the um, National Academies report, uh, which was funded by the U.S. Department of Education and the Administration for Children and Youth in, in the national government and several foundations, was really focused on how we can use the research and scientific knowledge that we currently have to inform policy and practice that would result in better educational outcomes for children who are called uh, DLLs or ELs. And Raphael, you asked me if I would just briefly define those terms. Yes, please do. And so I will. Um, They're really, um, the problem terminology in this area is, 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 is very difficult. And so the committee had to make some very hard decisions uh, and, and make choices, uh, none of which are totally optimal, or, uh, but, but we had to do them. So what we essentially did was to define uh, dual language learners, or DLLs, as children from birth to five who are, um, whose first language is not English and are in the process or um, will be learning English uh, in the schools. And then consistent with particularly federal um, rules and regulations that govern the education of children learning English, we use the term ELs, which is specified in current uh, federal legislation, to uh, talk about children from ages 6 to 21 uh, who are in the kindergarten to grade 12 education system uh, whose first language is not English 
uh, and who are uh, learning English as their second language, as well as learning the subject matter or academic content uh, required in their uh, grade levels. So I would just like to say that this is a very, very important issue. It, it of course, varies by region and locality, but one out of about 10 children in the United States are growing up in families where um, at least one uh, person is not uh, does not speak English. In places like California, given just wide state variation, it would be over 60% uh, of the children would be categorized either as DLLs or ELs, whereas in places like West Virginia, it would be about 2%. So I think the important point is that in the very large states like California, Florida, Texas, Illinois, certainly in, in Oregon as well, um, there are very large and significant uh, groups of, of children who are dual language learners and ELs. The important fact to, to take into account is that while these children are extremely diverse in the languages they speak, um, their national origins, their parental education, the economic backgrounds of their families, the conditions under which they immigrated, uh, and so forth. Most of the particularly young uh, DLLs are U.S. citizens. They're born in the United States. So they're a very, very important part of our, uh, of our population. The final thing that I would say is that this is a large group and their educational success uh, has just so important consequences for their individual futures, but also for the society and the communities in which they live. So it's in our interest to educate them as well as we can. The report also touches on the science of bilingualism. Yes. Can you talk about what that means and why it's important? Yes, very happy to. So as part of the responsibility um, of the funders, uh, we were asked to address what the scientific research and evidence says about the development of bi and multilingualism, particularly in young children. And there are several chapters in our report because there is a lot of research in this area. And I think the basic conclusion that we come to from this extremely large body of research, which also includes uh, research that has been conducted in the neurosciences or the brain sciences where we're, you know, able to observe brain pattern activity uh, as children hear and learn multiple languages, is this basic conclusion that bilingualism is a, a universal asset. Um, it's one in which um, children and people throughout the world are able to learn one or more languages from birth. It does not impede or uh, a language, other language development. It doesn't confuse children. And in fact, we conclude that bi and multilingualism is an asset to children um, themselves and to individuals. Um, the research shows that it has uh, cognitive consequences. It has um, emotional and social consequences, such as the ability to take perspectives of others, uh, empathy, um, self-control, self-regulation, uh, executive functioning, which are really important for learning and in the workplace. 
It also contributes to greater social understanding and trust uh, among children and hopefully in the future. And it has consequences for older people in terms of uh, either delaying or preventing the development of dementia. And so we see that they are just enormous positive outcomes for being a bi or multilingual individual. Um, and we, we really are seeking to um, challenge the notion that bilingualism is a deficit. And that is a serious problem in our schools. Thank you, Ruby. Perla, my next question is for you. As a principal, you're using what's known as the Gomez and Gomez dual language enrichment model, uh, which emphasizes native language learning to improve English learning. Tell me about the model and how it works at Equashaw. Okay. I appreciate Ruby's definition of DLLs and ELs. And within the bigger context of a pre-K-20, that makes perfect sense. In the traditional K-12, we define them differently. Or for us, a DLL is a dual language learner. So it would be students for whom English or Spanish, in our case, is their first language, learning a second language, where we are very clear that the goal for them is that they will leave our school system fluent, bilingual, uh, bicultural, biliterate. Right. And so um, it's, it's school-age children in my school are all considered DLLs, dual language learners. Whereas an EL, an ELL student, would um, traditionally in a K-12 setting be a student for whom the goal is ultimately that they would get to English acquisition. Sure. There isn't that importance of them maintaining their the first or second language. So right. um, so we use the Gomez Gomez model. It's it's a model created by Richard and Leo Gomez. They're both bilingual educators and um, have taught through the university level. They are out of Texas. And We've in our district, we've had dual language for many, many, many years. And we'd found that throughout Oregon, our outcomes of our dual language program, we were outperforming other dual language schools in Oregon, but we definitely weren't getting the outcomes that we see like on the Virginia Collier graph where students in dual language programs are outperforming English only students at the 50th percentile, and that's our goal. So we studied um, different models throughout the country that were taking place in schools with demographics like ours, and we landed on Gomez and Gomez. There are several features of the model. It's, none of it is rocket science, but it is the power of articulating a cohesive plan and program, pre-K through, in our case, through 12. Through, in my okay. building, I'm a pre-K six school, so pre-K for me six. it's pre-K six. But it's very specific in terms of all the non-negotiables. We do L1 literacy. Uh, The students receive instruction in their first language, explicit literacy instruction in pre-K, kindergarten, and first grade. Then beginning in second grade, all of our students receive two hours of literacy instruction a day, one hour in English, one in Spanish. Math is always taught in English only. Science and social studies are always taught in Spanish only with very structured um, kind of language of the day activities that happen in the opposite language. So there will be bilingual learning centers set up where all of the activities are math focused 
but they're all in Spanish just to also expose children to the academic language uh, in the opposite language in which they're receiving the formal instruction. I think what I appreciate the most about our transition to Gomez and Gomez is that they are very explicit about it, calling it an, an enrichment program. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our professional development is anchored in this idea that this is the type of instruction that children identified as talented and gifted receive. That we we aren't looking at this deficit model of, oh, these poor babies don't speak English. We look at it as, that this is pretty amazing that they're minds are functioning at four and five years of age in two languages and that they can acquire it and that this is the highest level of instruction that children can receive and that they can perform and just changing what we call it as this is an enrichment enhancement talented and gifted program for kids has changed that the approach that we all take to um to our program has it, has it changed the perception in the community as well and with parents and families? You know, it's, it's interesting because we are a neighborhood school, and so we first serve the kids in our neighborhood, but we've always had a waiting list. And our waiting list typically consists of families for whom the parents are highly educated and for years have known this. You know, monolingual English-speaking parents who have said, of course I want my child in a public school to leave bilingual. Who wouldn't want that? And then our waiting list also consists of then many families who have lost their language. You know, certain generations who, who say, you know, when I was little, my parents didn't want us to speak Spanish because Mm -hmm. of what they had experienced in it. It pains them that they've lost that connection and they want that for their children. So, you know, I feel like amongst populations that that understand that having two languages is just better than one, they've always gotten that. What has changed is more, I think, just internally how we speak about our students. It is so much more focused on, on the assets that the kids have and what what are they getting right? Whereas I, I feel like in general at the K twelve system, especially K three, there's there often feels to be a hyper focus on who are your red zone kids, who's not making it, who's the lowest, right. how are we gonna intervene? And that's important. But if your eye is always on the lowest group, then it begins to jade wh- where your top is. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're whole focus is on this idea of on grade level or advanced that that lower group just kind of has to come along sure, naturally sure. because that's what the system expects it, and your approach is pretty unusual uh, there aren't other programs like it in the state are there 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 aren't very many just i would say in general you don't find a lot of pre-k programs that are fully part of k-12 you you know you can find several schools that that share you know that a space like they will house pre-k programs but they're parallel programs i would say it is rare to find schools where the pre-k program really is part of the regular k whatever the school is k-4 k-5 and also the fact that our entire school is dual language. You'll find a lot of dual language schools where there's a strand 
of dual language or of English only. So I think the combination is is perfect. I mean, having pre-K through through sixth grade in our case, we have eight years with the kids. If you count pre-K, K, first through six, and what we know from the research is children who are in high quality programs, it takes about that long sure. to see that academic sure. language. And I feel like we were always working and we just kind of would send them to the next level, like crossing our fingers, but we didn't benefit from seeing really how fluent the children can be. Can you talk a little bit about the transition from pre-K into kindergarten and the early grades mm-hmm. and what you're seeing there and what kind of outcomes you're, sure. you're seeing? Sure. So our first cohort of pre-K students this year are third graders. So we've been we've been doing it and I mean I know it doesn't sound like very long but for us this is you know our fifth sixth year of pre-K and we've continued to refine what we're doing. What we were the most excited about initially was that because it isn't part of the K-12 continuum, there weren't specific rules or regulations or curriculum. And so it was just so exciting and liberating to be able to develop a program by researching and taking everything that we were seeing was working in all of these early learning programs and kind of melding them, making them ours and real um, aligning them to to our program so that we knew that we were preparing our students for a rigorous K-6 experience. We have learned a lot and continue to learn a lot. The transition is so seamless is what we find because our students are used to it. They, you know, all of the social parts, the socializing of kindergarten, even the the transitions, walking in line to the cafeteria. When they start kindergarten, strangers could walk in on the first day and I could say, point to the students that you think were in our (laughs) pre-K. And they're the ones that just understand, like, this is my cubby. This is where I put my jacket. Sure. Um, I'm sitting on the carpet. I'm waiting for instructions. It's it's kindergarten readiness from from day one. We see academically the pre-K students, they they are all really pre-readers. They they have developed that early, you know, even just directional I'm tracking left to right. They they've had experiences with books and with manipulatives with the school setting. You know, that said, they're they're individual kids and we see some students who I feel like even on, uh, if they have something, some exceptionality, language challenges, we have students on the autism spectrum. I, I'm just so glad that we've gotten to know them at four years. They are coming to us in kindergarten, regardless of what they're doing before. So I always feel like even our, our some of our children who in kindergarten and first grade are still struggling with things like self-regulation, I just look at them and think, gosh, imagine what what it would look like had we not had that full year with them before right. we even started right. kindergarten. It would be a very different answer. Yes, absolutely. Maria, uh, you're out at Earl Boyles Elementary as part of the David Douglas School District, and David Douglas uses a push-in approach to language instruction that involves all students 
and is implemented district-wide. How does that look when it's implemented, and tell me why it's effective. Um, well, first I'd like to say that we have about 70 languages spoken in That's our incredible, district. That's incredible, yeah. <laughs> and we, I, I know the benefits of dual language, and that is really amazing, and I wish we could offer that for all of, of our languages. <laughs> but uh, in our district, because of the super diversity that um, is, you know, in our district that uh, we feel like this is maybe the next best approach for us and um, about 40% of our students are um, active ESL students throughout the district and so um, that means that they qualify for language instruction and um, when we started this uh, I started the first pilot um, model about eight, nine years ago, just playing with it and noticing as an ESL teacher coming from the classroom and then becoming an ESL teacher that there was this disconnect from what the classroom teachers felt were their responsibility and what the ESL teachers were their responsibility and the academic language was not being addressed, you know, the, the need to shelter the language. Um, the classroom teachers were not trained or equipped on in that and the, as far as ESL teachers without classroom uh, background, they were not, uh, not equipped on, you know, the flip side. So um, we started sort of meshing the two together and instead of pulling 40 to 80% of a class <laughs> for the pull-out model and teaching them separately, uh, we started this in um, one school where we just kind of pushed in and taught all students because when we compared writing samples or reading scores, our students were actually doing pretty well, uh, you know, compared to their peers. So we thought, well, why don't we just try to meld these two within the classroom and see what happens? And uh, both groups grew and their, their writing got better, their reading got better. Um, they were able to have academic discourse and talk to their teachers and their teachers were talking to them. So um, that was sort of the beginning of this thing. And then uh, we, we did it full scale district wide. We um, did it a lot sooner than we thought we would. So we learned a lot along the way. <laughs> and um, this is our sixth year doing it uh, full district. And some of the biggest benefits were that teachers are now prepared. They're tuned into what their students are saying. Uh, one of our big, our, our first rules were students need to be talking 50% of the time within this this 30 minute block that we're providing and everyone, it's on everyone's schedule, you know, uh, third grade walks at this time, they trade students, there are however many classrooms there are at that grade level, that's how many proficiency levels we can offer. So uh, most schools have three classrooms within a grade level and so then you have wherever they fall. So you might have um, uh, early intermediate, intermediate, um, early advanced, advanced, which is pretty typical for third grade. Um, at the beginning, actually, we had more of a beginning, intermediate, <laughs> and then uh, early advanced, maybe. Now, our students have grown so much and we're getting to see them from preschool that our beginning level in kindergarten is small. We don't even have a whole classroom of beginners anymore. and. Uh, we had a classroom of beginners in fourth grade when we started, you know, right, so we're just right. seeing our students' English proficiency levels growing um, throughout the years. And this 50% talk time, I think that's one of the keys for us is that students are actually speaking. <laughs> They're asked to speak. Uh, when we first started, the research was showing that students were asked to speak 4% of the school day. And that those are native English speakers for ESL students which is what we're calling them in David Douglas. Um, for ESL students, it was more like 1% uh, of the school day they were actually speaking. <laughs> and so they weren't having this oral production of the language. And once they started um, 
being asked to, to have discourse and um, being asked to speak to their peers and to have dialogues with their teachers and to go, you know, it increase their, their social interactions, their ability to um, get along with each other and to express when something came up. So we saw that. We saw uh, um, growth in their social discourse and their academic discourse and just having dialogues that might inform the teacher of what else they need to know, what else needs to be explained. The teachers were literally tuned in to students um, and hearing gaps that maybe they never heard before or hearing um, things that they could address that is in their control and now they're equipped to address. Students um, were not missing more of the school day, <laughs> which is what was happening in, happening in the pull-out program. Um, instruction would continue when 40 to 60 percent of students would leave the classroom. Sure. And so they were naturally falling even further behind because they were missing math or writing or whatever happened to be you know, uh, happening during that instructional part of the day. Another uh, benefit was while students were now in the classroom, everyone was learning language, and it was called academic language, <laughs> right, which we right. sort of uh, caught on to, but then we really realized, wait, so this academic language that we're talking about, our, many of our students don't hear that in the home. It's not just a typical part of the discourse they hear at home. And then we had this realization of standard, you know, American education requires a middle-class language for our students. So mm -hmm. if the majority of our students are not hearing that in the home, then that's something we have to teach before we get to the academics, you know, and it's not a conceptual misunderstanding. It's a linguistic hole that needs to be filled in order to get to the conceptual and the academic part of it. So um, that was a, a big aha for us. And, um, you know, when we tie in ELD with specifically with science for several months at a time, we see our SVAC scores. It's reflected in our SVAC scores. When we tie it specifically with uh, math, we see it directly affected in our SVAC scores. We get higher scores. So that's something that we're playing with this year to try to address. Are there other outcomes that you're seeing specifically in the Earl Boyles community or, or elsewhere? You've talked a little bit about the impacts and the outcomes that you're seeing, but is there anything else that, that comes up when you think about what's happening at Earl Boyles? Preschool has brought a lot of wonderful benefits, and uh, one is just a, a high level of parent engagement and parent involvement, and we're able to offer... Um, even before preschool, a zero to three play group where parents are getting to sit down and have, you know, talk to their babies. And uh, they, there's a, an instructor there that sort of helps facilitate some of those um, conversations that parents are having with babies. And there are different um, groups. There's a Slavic group and a Spanish speaking group and a Chinese and a Vietnamese group that meets. <coughs> and so it's in the native language of the parent. And that sort of um, brought this other awareness too of well, we have parents that are active in the school and we're able to bring them along. And at the same time, we, over the last few years, are, um, because our language model has, our, our students are uh, learning English at a faster rate because of this new ELD walk to language approach that we're, uh, we're, we've impl implemented. But our students are also losing their native language at a faster rate than <coughs> ever before. And we're seeing that when, uh, an example, when our students pass the ELPA, I usually um, call them into my office and have them call their parents and tell them, you know, we, I, I passed the ELPA, that means that I speak English, you know, proficiently. And students, many of them are unable to have a conversation like that with their parents. Sure. <laughs> and that's new. That's the, the last three or four years I started seeing that more and more. And 
last year um, of the eight fifth graders, like five of them couldn't have a conversation with, they would say, would you call my mom and uh, not my dad or uh, my dad and not my mom? Or would you have an interpreter call and tell my parents because I don't speak the same language as them? Mm. And uh, one, it's heartbreaking. And two, that's an unintended consequence of our program, I believe, because they're just acquiring English at a faster rate and we're not addressing this other important detail of your native language is an asset. Your native language is like Ruby described, has all these cognitive benefits that can only be had if you maintain both languages. When you don't, I mean, when our students come in speaking um, two languages that are not very fluent, they many times don't exit the ELPA. They don't exit out of ESL because there is not a solid language that they've acquired from you know early on. And so when we're speaking academic English, it's just a little bit shakier, and uh, for the most part, they're just not. I don't know uh, what the research is behind that too, but I see it, and I could, I have some theories, but it's just harder to hear the differences and the nuances, and to hear um, the academic part that we're correcting. You know, it takes a lot more deliberate practice to undo some of the grammatically incorrect structures that students have acquired than to teach them correctly the first time around, you know, as academic English. And so some things we've done to sort of remedy that is we're being very intentional in our parent outreach. And when we have interpreters come into the school, we also have um, either a a short article or something that they can tell parents, um, you know, we really honor your language uh, and the culture that you bring. And it's very important for us that you know that and that you uh, maintain the culture and the language at home and that um, we we will teach your children English and uh, we will do our part here but we also want you to continue to speak the language that you're comfortable with at home and maybe it is English and, and another language and if that's what they're comfortable with then we want them to continue to communicate with their child and not feel forced or we do not want to impose what happens in the home but we do want to honor that and uh, I'm also a product of this uh, notion of uh, my parents somehow got the message that Romanian was not important in the home. And so I remember when I was in about second grade, my dad uh, came home from a parent conference and said, we are not speaking Romanian in the home anymore. We are only going to speak English. And Based, based on what he learned from, from his, the, your teachers at the time or yeah. the school? Yeah. You know, uh, when I tried to ask him about it, he um, he wasn't sure if someone had told him that or if it was just a message that he uh, understood, you know, without words. But sure. um, he definitely got the message that Romanian was not important and that we were uh, supposed to be speaking English even at home and uh, that that was not an asset for us to, to know and mm. to speak English. And by default, neither was our cu- culture, <laughs> you know, and all the cultural things that we, we did as a family and as a community. Uh, were also not very important in the grand scheme of things. You know, if we were to get a job and have education, uh, you know, in America that we needed to be American and speak English, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, we do offer English classes to our parents if they um, want to learn. And we 
we have at least two or three different, you know, uh, Multnomah County Library, and uh, there's a community college that offers it. Our SUN programs offer English, so we have lots of ways that parents can learn English if they want to, but we don't push that, and we try really hard not to mix the two messages. <laughs> Only, you know, you speak your native language at home, and then we have this English class that you can take. We try to keep those two messages separate because we do want to emphasize maintaining the native language and the native culture. And like Ruby said, this perspective taking too, there are benefits that languages bring to the way that we see the world that are unique to certain languages, you know. And uh, for example, in English, we are constantly thinking about time. Every verb has to be conjugated and, you know, the correct time and tense that it happened in. And uh, that's not that is not present in every language. And there are benefits uh, that languages experience when they're not constantly thinking about time, you know? So we want to honor that and we want those perspectives and we are richer together when we have more perspectives. And we, you know, uh, having PD on that for teachers and having uh, um, this message directly told to parents that we honor them instead of not saying anything and by default sending the opposite message, you know? and and telling our students that they just light up when you tell them that they, um, it's so cool that you speak a different language. How do you say this in this language? And how do you say that, you know? And right, when you take some time to recognize that and honor that. Yeah, and, it, it, and it, they know when it feels genuine, you know? And I think that we, we have been working on it now for, for a few years and, and they know, and they're speaking up more. Whereas when we first started, it was kind of like, uh, I don't know how to say that in my language, or they would, you know, be embarrassed to say it, or just not, not respond, or look at us like, really? <laughs> so we're seeing that that kids are really just more comfortable in, in being who they are, and that knowing that their culture is valid and that it's important, and that, that it's beautiful. <laughs> so it's it's a. Uh, I mean, you've each talked about sort of the the value of learning, understanding another language, sort of the implications on on culture. And at the same time, I think with English only, English speaking only families, there's a craving also with, with many people to learn another language or to learn more about another culture. And it seems like, you know, there's got to be a way to bring these, these two worlds together a little bit more. And I just, you know, if we think about Oregon at the moment, I've got some numbers where we think about home language for dual language learners, Spanish is the leading uh, language with nearly 80,000 DLL parents uh, speaking Spanish, and then Russian-Ukrainian after that with about 5,000 uh, parents, and then we have Chinese and Vietnamese, each with about 4,000. Uh, so I'm just, you know, when we think about the sheer numbers um, of like a David Douglas school district with 70 languages, how do we really, how does the system, how does K-12 reach everyone and it, it, to make sure that the system itself is inclusive and, and is effective? Well, you know, I always think about our situation. I, I think we need to think about Oregon or even New York, where I live, as being unusual in terms of what happens in the world. So, you know, we know that there are many countries of the world where First, people speak the dialect of the region. You know, my grandparents are from Japan and they were immigrants and they really didn't even speak standard Japanese. Uh, they spoke the regional dialect and um, they sent their children 
their first-generation children to Japanese schools because that's where you learn standard Japanese. They learned English in the schools. You know, there was another language or other languages that they were surrounded with. So I, I, I just think that what's really important here is that communities and, and, and certainly, if it's possible, states in the country really recognize that you can have a very rich country with, with you know, multi, multi, multilingualism. I mean, I think that's the case. I mean, most countries like China or India have official languages, but that they coexist with hundreds of dialects and other languages as well. So, you know, it's, it, this is somewhat, what we're talking about is somewhat uniquely American. And the reason why I bring in this larger global context is when I think of the loss of language, it's a very serious problem, very serious. Because when you think about it, if you can't communicate with your parents and your family and your grandparents and so forth, there's an absolutely huge loss. So, you know, the maintenance of the L1, if it's possible, of the first language, I think is really important. Uh, so trying to, you know, change attitudes among parents. I mean, you know, the Romanian, what your, this is still happening. Um, we know that health professionals, others, teachers, a lot of people are, are saying English, you know, don't speak any other language to your children. And so our report basically says, you know, that, that family members and people who are in contact with, with children and uh, teachers and so forth um, should highly encourage parents and family members to speak the languages to their children that they feel the most comfortable in. And it's a way of maintaining language and culture and identity, but it's an imperfect way, I would say, because there's so many counter forces in American society. But I think if we can recognize that language loss is occurring and it is not a positive thing in terms of, you know, family relations, for example, or, you know, the development of a sense of who you are as a person and your, your heritage and so forth, uh, maybe we can sort of have some changes in the positive direction. So I'm, you know, I hope our report contributes to that because it's extremely strong. And I think the other thing that I would say is that that very strong position is based on scientific research. And that's where we thought we could really make a contribution. Maria Perla, do you have comments on that? Yeah, I think... Um, Ruby's comments made me think about families that we have had, Spanish-speaking families who have come in, and I always assume or wonder that what they've gone through, there are reasons that parents who come in, in our case, Spanish-speaking parents, want their children to have a strong command of English. And, and I, you know, parents want what's best for their children. So I always assume there's a reason that they are questioning, is this really best for them? We, we spend a lot of time explaining to parents because we have parents that will say, you know, we are going to maintain the Spanish at home. They're not going to lose the Spanish. We're, we're not going to let that happen, but we want, you at the school to teach them English. And we spend a lot of time explaining to parents the difference in conversational Spanish and academic Spanish. And I share with the families that that mentality of you will not lose your language is 
the mentality we were raised with, my brother and I. We knew we would always be <laughs> Spanish speakers, but I went to school in Oregon in English only. And it wasn't until I started teaching third grade in a dual language classroom on the Spanish side that I realized yeah, I'm not as bilingual as I thought I was. It didn't even occur to me when I got my first teaching job that I was going to have to spend a lot of time learning academic. I mean, I wasn't teaching calculus. It was third grade. But I didn't know how to say metamorphic <laughs> rock and spend. Why would I have that sure. academic vocabulary? I didn't. Right. And we still speak Spanish at home, but we don't sit around and talk about, you know, multiplying by the reciprocal in math. And yeah. so yeah. we explain to parents our goal is that your child be really fluently bilingual enough to be able to choose to attend a university in a Spanish-speaking country. Mm -hmm. That's a different <clears throat> level of Spanish than what is maintained if it's conversational mm -hmm. at home. Our goal is bilingualism at a very high level. And that's when, um, you know, parents tend, tend to agree because I'll say, wow, and en la casa enseñan matemáticas porque en mi casa hablábamos puro español, pero no eran las ciencias. Hablábamos <laughs> de cómo nos fue. You know, it's a different dialogue at yeah. home. I, I do see it, and it's, it's such an amazing power that we have with the children. I think mm -hmm. what, exactly what you're saying, Maria, that we can instill that pride and that depending on whether it's the English half of the day or the Spanish half, the children who, for whom the language of instruction is the first language feel like the rock stars. So in the morning, if my morning is in English and I'm a Spanish speaker, it's challenging. And then, but in the afternoon, when I'm in the Spanish part mm. is when I get to shine. And then what we see is that the real brokers are the bilingual students who can go between both mm -hmm. languages, they see their power very early on and can help negotiate meaning for their for their peers. It, it really has raised the bar on being bilingual. And I'll tell the students, no, 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 you have to be bilingual because I'm gonna get very, very old. <laughs> and when I'm old, someone will have to be here doing this job. And you have to speak Spanish to do this job. And they'll say, okay, okay, Dr. Rodriguez. <laughs> I, I will stay bilingual. Okay, all right, because you have to do my job. Make them promise. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I, I think the other thing that I would say that comes very strongly from our, our research or a study is that uh, that would be helpful to parents is to know that a strong first language is the foundation yes. for learning the second language. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think they understand that and that because they speak the first language, they can be a very important influence on the development of the second language without speaking English, mm -hmm. for example. Um, you know, I, I just want to address something else because I think it's really important. There was a very um, <clears throat> important public agenda survey of uh, particularly immigrant families, and they were asked, what is the most important important thing to you that you would want. And it was very clear that uh, for the respondents, English, learning English for themselves was very important. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason they wanted to learn English was for economic mobility, economic and social mobility. And so, you know, I think it's really important to 
kind of realize that you can, you know, this is not an either or situation, that you have many people <clears throat> who are not speaking English who realize that it's very important for their own economic well-being and, you know, want to learn English. I think mm -hmm. that's very important. At the same time, they can really support their children in the home by speaking their mm -hmm. first language. So I, I just wanted to, you know, we have to like look at this situation in a much more complex way than we typically do. Absolutely. Maria, do you have other comments just in thinking about how yeah. the education system itself can really be mindful of being inclusive and mm -hmm. reaching everybody? Yeah, I just was sort of daydreaming as Pedro I was talking that, you know, imagining our parents, parents of our students speaking to their, their children in their native languages. And I was thinking about, you know, the 30 million word gap study that we often talk about when we talk about language, you know, and that's for all students. Mm -hmm. So when students are, uh, you know, students who um, uh, live in poverty or grow up in poverty versus the professional class, that the big thing is that their parents are talking, the, the amount of time that parents are spending talking to them. And so when we tell, when we encourage parents to speak to their children, they're speaking to their children. They're hearing more words. Those uh, number of words are increasing, and hopefully the quality of the words are increasing too, and, and that we're having an effect, a broader effect on not just the native language, but language in general, you know, and language literally builds the circuitry of the brain. The more language that student children are exposed to and the different types of language that they're exposed to, then the you know, it creates different pathways in the brain and their brain, you know, and, and the prefrontal cortex gets developed by certain language patterns that they acquire and things that they're able to notice in their environment, you know, and, and so that's what I was daydreaming mm -hmm. about of, you know, like we're not, we're, we're building, you know, hopefully language in general and whichever language and, and when you speak to a child, even if they're not speaking back and especially if they're not speaking back yet, you're paying attention to them, you're in tune with them and there's, you know, that whole idea of tuning in uh, to your child, taking turns, talking more, that those have tremendous cognitive benefits, you know, just in general. So um, in whichever language that you're um, comfortable speaking in, that you're the idea that you're speaking to your child is huge. And um, if they are getting a second language and they're able to code switch and able to, mm -hmm. you know, maneuver um, <clears throat> in different social situations, I, that's part of what brings that flexibility, the cognitive, you know, flexibility too. And um, yeah, that they're paying attention more, they're in tune, their phonemic awareness is automatically increased, right? And they're able to hear more sounds and be um, familiar with more sounds. I mean, just all this, I just am loving hearing about all this too and imagining that at some level, even if, if our children are monolingual, you know, that emphasizing language is huge and will bring a huge increase, you know, and when we reach out to our second language parents, we, we all, always try to send the same information to our native English speaking parents too. And we are sort of um, being strategic and we're starting with oral storytelling, encouraging oral storytelling, and then encouraging literacy activities, encouraging some writing, you know, so we're trying to be a little strategic in how um, we want to encourage parents to interact with their children to hopefully build a little mm -hmm. bit more literacy. And, um, but, I think as humans, bottom line is that we want to know that we belong, right? And if we're saying your native language is not important, your culture is not important, and we know that we, I know where I was born, <laughs> uh, and if that, 
you know, and if that's not honored or somehow looked down upon or if I have this sense of, well, that's embarrassing to admit that I'm an immigrant or that I was born in a different country, you know, that doesn't help me feel like I belong, you know, and if that's the thing that we are all seeking, you know, it's mm -hmm. just we're not building up our students when we don't honor who they are and who, who, who they are as people, you know. Right. Right. So I probably went off on a tangent there, but... <laughs> no, I mean, language is, you know, I mean, I think it's very relevant because mm -hmm. language is so important in defining who you are. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, the, and that's why I think, you know, buyer multilingualism is, is, is so valuable because you're able to see different, you know, different ways of um, looking at things and, and being able to understand where other people you know, being able to be in another person's shoes, mm -hmm. which is just, you know, a, a, a very valuable human asset. Maria and Perla, would you say that you are meeting the needs of dual language learners in your community? And if, you know, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing and what might be getting in the way of being able to do the work that you're doing more effectively? Um. How long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> three days. Uh, three days. Okay. <laughs> Let me see. I, well, first, I I feel that we are meeting the needs of the students who made it in because we we have a certain number of slots and and our pre-K and kindergarten roundup um, we announce it on this day we're going to start taking registrations and families line up an hour before to to get in and it's you know i always want to take more families and take more families <clears throat> and for the families that we don't have room for i know some of them are ending up in in english only schools where they will be supported but i don't believe it's at the level that we could support them at. sure so for the ones that, that we have and we serve, I, I do think that we are doing a very, very good job. I, I'm very aware as far as challenges. I mean, there's, there are different levels of challenges. Some are just the, the logistical, the, the policy, the specifically with, with kind of this marrying pre-K to the K-12 system has been such a learning experience for for me primarily because as a principal I try to protect my teachers from so much so I take it on so they don't have to worry about hoops and it's a lot of hoops just to be like depending on who I'm calling I'm either a director because in the pre-k language I'm not a principal I'm a director mm -hmm. and I need to have certain qualifications and a certain rating and I need to be getting every class I attend to um, a certain, like their equivalent of what we call teacher standards and practices. The two systems are very different. And that is a challenge because it just is time consuming. It's not hard. None of it is hard. I can figure it all out. But those are all hours that I could be sitting in classrooms watching instruction, giving feedback to teachers, doing real instructional leadership that I'm not able to because I'm trying to figure out if the substitute teacher can be in the pre-K classroom because they have different regulations and they had to be through this other background check and are they cleared? No, okay, well then I need to move assistance around. That is a frust very frustrating 
challenge that um, is just exhausting. I think right now, specifically in our country, a greater kind of socio-political challenge is that there is status assigned to certain languages. And for us being an English-Spanish dual language program, I mean, we're not trying to fund a border wall to keep France out. You know, it's very personal. Mm -hmm. And it, it is for our population, uh, 100% about families from Spanish-speaking countries politically right now. Right. And so to kind of try to to balance and build this pride when some of the discourse or the narrative on a on a political level is so anti-Spanish, anti-Mexican, mm -hmm. is is hard because you you can tell the kids and build them up and love them up, but the second they turn on the TV at home, what they are hearing isn't isn't reinforced politically. And if anything, I would say we've we've gone backwards. I mean, I I've teased colleagues who have said we want to start a dual language in other districts I, I just don't know if the board will approve and I will say just tell them it's going to be an English and French program <laughs> and they'll be like oh my gosh can my kids go too because there is status it's not it's it sucks but it it's real um, that is something we are finding is difficult we've whereas the focus could and should just be acquiring this beautiful language, we are finding ourselves more and more focused on acquiring these two beautiful languages and a lot of resilience because you're you're going to need it. Yeah. Maria, do you have comments on? Yeah, so according to the state, we do we are meeting the needs of our uh, language learners. Um, last year, we um, were awarded with the Carmen West Award at the Oregon Department of Ed that sort of highlighted our ELPA scores, English language proficiency assessment scores, as well as some of our math scores on the SBAC. And uh, they said that um, David Douglas has one of the highest needs of, uh, for English language learners in Oregon, and we were meeting at one of the highest levels compared to all districts in Oregon. So according to, to the state, yes. According to me, we could do so much better. There's so much room for growth. And we, knowing what we know about language and how I think relatively a relatively small effort that we've made that has had such a high impact. Imagine if we were really intentional. As I mentioned before, when we intentionally plan language instruction around science and around math, that we see these 20% higher scores on the SBAC compared to like schools or compared to other Oregon schools. That to me is huge. That means that we have a lot of potential, you know, if we're very strategic and where our students are great at having, you know, discourse that lasts maybe two to four turns, but going further than that, because of, you know, because of the way our ELD model is, they, they have this academic discourse, but to go really in depth, that's not really happening. I don't think to, if you're familiar with the web's depth of knowledge, Maybe it's a level one and two. In fact, I took out, out the web and I highlighted the things that we've been asking students to do with our, we call them our maps. And uh, this year I um, am rewriting the maps for Earl Boyles and already we're seeing a lot of growth and where teachers are seeing significant difference in the ability for of students to um, express their thinking 
to go deeper with their conceptual understanding of math and now uh, uh, the reading um, math that we're uh, using and um, to take perspectives, you know, to, to pretend that they're in this, per this character's shoes versus this character's shoes and to, you know, that language is asking them to do that and the ELD instruction is asking them to do that and then when they get to reading or when they get to math to actually use that academic language to express their conceptual understanding, not just the, you know, have academic discourse, but so we're, we're really trying to be a lot more intentional. We're seeing a lot of growth already, so uh, that's really exciting. Another thing, too, that we're combating is there was a Scientific American article that came out a few weeks ago that said that our national discourse is changing, that it, we're um, at a national level, we're now having discourse to win. It's sort of changed mm -hmm. from discourse to learn to discourse to win. And you can imagine mm -hmm. just a few examples of that. But we're the, the um, Common Core standards, if you look at the triple Venn of math and science and um, ELA, English language arts, the middle of that triple Venn asks students to construct viable arguments and to critique the reasoning of others. And um, critiquing the reasoning of others, that could take the discourse to win or the discourse to learn. But when we ask kids to revise their thinking and that they have this, dis you know, when that's what that was our math map is we were ha uh, having kids go through this effective thinking cycle and to have discourse to learn different ways to solve problems that and the more ways you have the more perspectives you have in, in how to solve a problem and by the end you are asked to revise your thinking well that's discourse to learn right that you're not attacking the way that somebody else solved mm -hmm. a problem you're trying to come up with more ways and if you apply that on a grand scale that's sort of what we're saying with languages too right when we have different perspectives and we learn from each other's perspectives we all win <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh yeah and another thing too that's on the decline at a national level and maybe a world level is empathy that our teenagers are dramatically less able to be empathetic or to show empathy to, to peers. And that's already sort of a, a trademark of, <laughs> of teenagers, but even more so in the last, mm -hmm. I think it was five years, the, the study that I saw, that they're just less able to, to, to put themselves in other, uh, other people's shoes. And I think through practicing this language and having this academic language generalize in, into just the way that you think about things, that's a beautiful thing, right? And you can't, you can't help, but if this is now your, your mental model of how you approach problems or situations, this is just the way you think about people and about things, right? And that to me shows that language can be really powerful, you know, and that we've sort of scratched the surface on the impacts and, and addressed the needs of, or the, the potential impact that we can have on dual language learners or, or on children who are not hearing academic discourse, but on a grand scale, we can be doing a lot more with it, you know. So um, that was my long answer. <laughs> no, thank you. So when we think about the needs of DLLs and ELs, are there leading states or systems that come to mind, Ruby? Well, um, yes. I would start from the states that actually have official bilingual education policies. Um, and those states include Minnesota, as you said, mm -hmm. um, and which certainly has at least 100 languages. New York State, another state like that. California, of course, you know, recently be returned to a bilingual state um, based on a voter ballot initiative uh, in November. 
You know, Texas is a bilingual state. The state of Utah is officially a dual immersion language educational state. So there are a number of states. They're, they're probably, you know, between five, five and ten maybe, officially and unofficially, because most of the states that I um, just mentioned actually have policy that have been, you know, passed by the state legislature. And so then, you know, they have an implementation from the State Department of Education and so forth. But there are other states, maybe like Delaware, where it's not official policy, but in practice they're, they're putting it forward. So, you know, I, th- I think states can be very important in terms of setting a, 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 what I would call a milieu or a context for enabling or, or, or allowing districts to do, um, you know, innovative practice. Uh, so um, I, I, I think that's, uh, I'm very encouraged by it. I think the seal of biliteracy uh, which has been adopted by now, I think, by at least half of the states, also provides a way of um, sort of saying to the pre-K to 12 system that we need to to develop, you know, through that pipeline, uh, bilingual uh, or multilingual students. So I think that's, you know, that that's an, another kind of pressure point. Uh, the big, I think, challenge, equity challenge there is, you know, whether um, the dual language learners that we have talked about in the podcast, uh, who typically come from lower income backgrounds, will be able to have the same access and advantages and opportunities from these programs as the more advantaged children uh, do. Because the demand among, um, you know, more advantaged affluent families for uh, dual language programs has been well documented um, throughout the country and when they're provided there's kind of a little a big pressure of crowd out so um, some of the more mature programs like the district of columbia which has had you know a, 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 a dual language immersion program for for decades is having to put into place that there is going to be you know, equal access among children with, with who come from di- different economic backgrounds, uh, but that DC is not unique in that in that regard. Um, anywhere where there is a good dual mature dual language immersion program, you have those um, kinds of pressures. I think also with what uh, Ma- Maria said, you know, we we have to recognize that all of the things that we are talking about and trying to do at the policy level and the practice and implementation level is occurring within a very specific historical context that we find ourselves in. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it has an impact on, on schools and, and on kids and on, um, you know, state policy and national policy. So it's, we, we are going uphill right now. I think, and I think we need to take that into account. And then finally, I would say that, you know, the biggest challenge that is typically or standardly identified in dual language education is the workforce. And there's the implicit assumption that if we can solve that by, you know, educating the workforce, we're going to be fine. I think we need to think more carefully about it. Obviously, you know, having supportive superintendents and principals who, you know, who, who support teachers to do these kinds of programs that 
um, you know, Perla and, and Maria have described um, is, is very important. I, I'm not saying that it isn't, but you, you always have these cross pressures that, you know, um, how people do see the populations that we're talking about. And it, it, we have to recognize it, recognize that bias, and we have to address that bias um, in order to have effective education. Because, if, because frankly, as our report really indicates, that at every level of education, the important factor in educational outcome is the trust, uh, trust between the teacher and the student and the respect of the teacher for children and families that provides the sort of the conditions for learning. So, you know, without that, I think you can have the best instruction, uh, but you'll always be kind of like, you know, like one foot mm-hmm. kind of chained with a ball. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what I, you know, what I hear here from these programs is that that kind of respect for children and youth and families is there and also that that has resulted in you know the 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 trust that is fundamental to being successfully educated thinking about the state level uh quickly is there an opportunity to shape dual language programs through the every every student succeeds act yes (laughs) What, what would that look like well you know, states vary. I mean, you know, we're getting into the really the important issue of what is the role of state departments of education mm-hmm. in educational change, but what is the role of state departments of education in this particular area? And, and I think that we're also, I think, moving from a more compliance model to, or an accountability model to more of a some people would call a technical assistance and support model. And different states are kind of moving at different rates, you know, uh, about this. And, but that change is definitely, I think, in the work. So I would say that the potential of a State Department of Education in Oregon is can it make that shift from compliance to providing the resources and assistance to support districts and local schools to do better education in this area of dual language learners. And, and you know, as, as I said, I'm going to be talking to people in, who, who, who actually do this um, at the state level. And it, uh, let me say, the, the state, you know, we're a very diverse country. Um, there are 50 states, you know, Puerto Rico and so forth, the trust territories and all of that. So places are at very different, different, you know, um, um, places and leadership is really important. When I look across the states and where good things are happen, happening, you typically have a person or persons in the State Department of Education whose heart and soul is, is, is you know, devoted to making this work. Do you have any questions for each other or, or comments on what we just talked about? If you want to talk about ESSA, feel free. But do you, just wondering if you have questions for each other. I was wondering, Maria, with your program, when you were describing the model, are your English, native English L1s, do you put like your advanced DLLs with them? What are your English only speakers doing while you're 
ELL students are in one of these three They're classes. part of the mix, yeah. We, we um, assess all students in the fall uh, on their language proficiency um, level. And um, when we first started doing this six years ago, even in fourth and fifth grade, we had native English speakers at level three out of mm -hmm. five. Five is proficient. Many students at a level three, uh, four, very few at a five. And now six years later, um, in fifth grade at least, we don't have to walk because all of our students, uh, except for a handful, are at a level four or five, uh, mostly at a five. Mm -hmm. And the ones, the students who are at a level three are either newer to our school or um, have other needs. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so they're part of the mix too and they're, they're growing too. too, yeah. And do you use, what do you assess them with, fours or fives? Uh, we use the express test um, from um, EL Achieve. Yeah, do true. Yeah, uh -huh. and mm -hmm. also the Gap Finder. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for if we if there's something you know if we think well could we create more groups or could we really dig in and see where the gaps are or where mm -hmm. the holes are um, then we might use a, a Woodcock Munoz for mm -hmm. um, second language learners or. Um, just other, you know, a writing sample to see, okay, are they using transition words if it's a sequence, you know, mm -hmm. paragraph that would sequence the events of something. Uh, we use our Dibble scores for retail for, you know, to see where their comprehension is, if there are, if it's a language or really a conceptual mis, you know, mm -hmm. uh, understanding. So we have a lot of tests we could pull from. Yeah. Also the, um, the um, SBAC scores mm -hmm. for, um, you know, they're listening and speaking, or not speaking, but they're listening scores on there and comprehension that we could look at to dig a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. But the, the quick snapshot that every single student gets is that express test. Mm -hmm. That's great. And then the only other difference would be then that your native English L1 speakers just don't, you just don't ELPA them. Exactly. Yeah. So the only <laughs> time that our ESL yeah. students actually meet one another is during the ELPA test and that's happening now where um, this is my second week with them mm -hmm. and uh, it, was, it was really interesting because I um, ha have been giving them this survey that um, Children's Institute and PSU helped create and we were just curious where, what, where do students see themselves as far as the value of their native language and how often do they speak their native language uh, is it important to them now? Is it important to them in the future? And uh, mm -hmm. it was really cool because um, last week when I pulled the first group, um, I said, you know what's great about everybody in this room? We all speak another language. And they looked around, the, the fifth grade was the first group, they looked around and their faces lit up and mm -hmm. they said, you speak another language to some of their peers? And which language do you speak? And it was really cool. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was the first time that I sort of mm -hmm. highlighted it in that way. It was mm -hmm. usually when we pulled out students for ELPA, it's um, we're all gonna take this test. And, and other peers, when, uh, when I pull the uh, ESL, active ESL students, their peers say, can I take the ELPA yeah. test? When are you going to take me? <laughs> and they just have no idea why their, you know, why their peers mm -hmm. are getting pulled, and um, they're right in there too, and they're benefiting from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that we learned in our report is that if all children, whether they're labeled as ELs or DLLs, are educated in the way, in the best ways we know can lead to really good outcomes, they're going to, they're going to perform. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's what, what, what we, you know, really concluded. And I think it's really very important, you know, not to 
come with preconceived notions of what the capacities of any labeled group of children are. Mm -hmm. And that's our, I think that's one of our biggest barriers. Mm -hmm. And the places where they have been able to break down that barrier tend to have really good educational outcomes, mm -hmm. documented educational outcomes. Well, I wanted to thank the three of you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I thought I could ask maybe if you, I would just invite you to keep, give me a closing farewell in another language. <laughs> yeah. That would be wonderful. <laughs> sure. Okay. Closing farewell. Ojalá. Espero y que uh, hayan disfrutado de este tiempo con, con nosotras, que es una, es una tema que realmente es muy personal e importante tanto para nosotros como para los estudiantes quienes son uh, lo más importante. Mine was going to be really short. <laughs> I was just going to say That's fine. Uh, thank you and goodbye. <laughs> Mine's going to be very short too because I have a multilingual background but none of it is very well developed. So I will say one word that I always use from the native Hawaiians. It's, um, the term is imua. Imua means go forward. Thank you very and much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure a strong beginning for Oregon's children. Learn more at childinst.org. <laughs>